Since the school year started this year, more than 1,000 schools across 31 states have temporarily closed because of COVID. Did you know that our news media gets the history of the Spanish flu wrong? That stories about resistance to restrictions back then, such as mass mandate, social distances, and lockdowns, are way overblown by our news media now. According to Mr. John M. Barry, the author of The Great Influenza, an award-winning book about the Spanish flu, you didn't need restrictions back then. Fear was keeping people home, and fear compelled people to wear their masks. He explained that fear was particularly acute because young people were dying, including pregnant mothers, and that children under the age of 10 were most vulnerable. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 17, 2021, and this is Adele with Appeal.News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. Economists were projecting that the U.S. economy will take off after this Labor Day. Well, much to everyone's disappointment, the increase in COVID's Delta variant cases has, instead, grounded our economy. It's September 2021, and the COVID-19 pandemic has been ravaging our country for about a year and a half now. According to the CDC, close to 660,000 Americans have died of COVID so far. And we still haven't reached a national consensus on how to fight COVID. From Florida to New York, then down to LA and up to Seattle. Schools this year have different recommendations and mandates about mask wearing, vaccination, and social distancing. It's as if principles of virology differ depending on whether a state, county, or city is predominantly Republican or Democrat. Is this how our country is supposed to fight a major pandemic? What about the next major pandemic, one that may even be deadlier? While we can't predict what happens in the future, we can, in fact, draw lessons from what happened in the past, from a previous pandemic that killed about 675,000 Americans, not too far off COVID's current death toll. To do that, we spoke with Mr. John M. Berry, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, the epic story of the greatest plague in history, which won the 2005 Keck Communication Award from the United States National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine for the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. In 2005, Mr. Barry also won the September 11th Award from the Center for Biodefense and Emerging Pathogens at Brown University. 
Mr. Barry has served on a federal government's Infectious Disease Board of Experts, the only non-scientist to do so. He has also served on the advisory board of the MIT Center for Engineering Fundamentals and on the advisory committee at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and also on the board of the Society of American Historians. In this introduction, I would be remiss if I forgot to mention two more points about Mr. Barry. First, another one of his works, Rising Tide, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, is an award-winning book that in 2005 the New York Public Library named as one of the 50 best books in the preceding 50 years, including fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, a book that got Mr. Barry also involved in policymaking regarding flood protection. Second, <laughs> Mr. Barry actually used to be a football coach before he turned to writing. I encourage you to read his fascinating bio on his personal website, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Mr. Barry and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Mr. Barry, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me, sir. Uh, pleasure. Looking forward to it. Same here. My pleasure Thanks. as well. What is your book, The Great Influenza, about? Well, about the 1918 pandemic and uh, how society uh, responded, how people in positions in power, whether they be scientists or politicians, acted and you know what we can learn from that. Why did you write this book? Why this subject? Well, I've always uh, been interested in, in uh, science. Uh, when I was a kid, the only two things I wanted to do was uh, either medical research. I never wanted to be a, a clinician, a doctor, treating mm -hmm. patients. I was very mm -hmm. interested in, in research and, uh, and write. So sort of combined those things in the book. Was there, was there anything particularly alarming in the early 2000s, late 1990s, that compelled you to focus on this subject, the Spanish flu? No, no. Uh, I started it before uh, the H5N1 uh, virus, which is a very lethal virus, 40%, sometimes 60% case mortality uh, before that surfaced in uh, Hong Kong in 1997. And coincidentally, the book was published when that virus resurfaced uh, in, in 2004. Uh, but it was, that's total coincidence. That's total coincidence. Yeah, there was something else that actually happened just by the time I started the book. But again, it was a coincidence. That was that uh, Jeff Taubenberger, a scientist uh, now at the National Institutes of Health, uh, actually managed to sequence the genome from the virus uh, 
extracting it from uh, pathology uh, samples at the uh, Army Institute of Pathology, where he then was. I see. So, but that was that was not an impetus. That happened. Correct. To totally. Occur totally. Exactly. There's a popular story that President W. George W. Bush read an advanced copy of your book, The Great Influenza, while he was on vacation in Crawford, Texas. How did he get a copy, an advanced copy of your book? Well, first, he's a U.S. president. He can get anything, right? But it wasn't, a, it wasn't an advanced copy, although I, I think that's been in the press. But that, Yeah, that's been in the press. Yes, sir. Go ahead, please. Uh, it had already been published. Uh, 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 someone who's become a close friend and is now the Assistant Director General of the World Health Organization, Stuart Simonson, was then an Assistant Secretary of HHS, uh, had been very interested in preparing for a pandemic prior to my book's publication. He read it. Mm -hmm. uh, he gave it to Mike Lovett, the Secretary. Uh, Lovett gave it to Bush, which is actually quite a reader, quite a very serious reader. He was a history major as well, yeah. Uh, and uh, oddly enough, uh, Bush had, had read one of my earlier books. In fact, <laughs> uh, the other book he even references, uh, Rising Tide, he even mentions that in his autobiography, uh, although he doesn't mention the influenza book in his autobiography. That's strange. It impacted him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he put his... Uh, impetus behind when you have the president very seriously interested in an issue uh it's quite different from having a cabinet secretary very seriously interested in of issue. course and uh it may, he made it a high priority and uh that the bush administration did a lot of work on on pandemic preparedness did president bush or high-ranking members of his administration contact you and consult with you? Uh, I've never talked to uh, to Bush, but uh, I got pretty involved in the sort of the conceptualizing of the pandemic response, and and uh, you know did meet with uh, people in you know, part of the White House and and uh, you know Secretary Levitt uh, and and many others. <laughs> And at many meetings in the early days. Do you think, and this is a speculation, but uh, I, can't, I can't help but ask this question. Do you think the fact that President Bush and his presidency had already experienced 9-11, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, and then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was late 2004, early 2005, Katrina, the hurricane, do you think those sort of experiences made him hypersensitive to a potential pandemic, to another crisis, if you will? Well, don't forget SARS. You left out SARS. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. SARS, uh, 2003, reserving. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, the experience of SARS, the resurfacing of H5N1, uh, and frankly, if you, if you, you know, read my book, then uh, those things in combination are certainly going to get your attention. Of course. With or without my book, 
you know, you, you, the book just adds a punctuation point to it. Was President Bush's preparation plans uh, and everything he did with uh, Homeland Security uh, were his preparation plans implemented during uh, COVID-19? No. No, they were not. Um, do you know why? Well, you know, leadership was different. <laughs> why don't we take a short break here and then talk about the Spanish flu, sir? Mr. Barry, what was the Spanish flu pandemic? Well, uh, influenza, all influenza viruses, their natural home is in birds, uh, particularly waterfowl. And they obviously have the capacity to jump species and infect humans. Uh, every so often throughout history, uh, going about as far back as we can look, there have been times when a new influenza virus is jump species to humans. And it's uh, different enough from existing seasonal influenza uh, that people's immune systems have great difficulty dealing with it. And uh, when that happens, it usually spreads very rapidly, very widely. And in the case of 1918, this is not always the case, but in 1918, it was extremely lethal. The death toll from 1918 was probably at least 50 million people. It may have been 100 million people. Worldwide. Worldwide. If it adjusts for, adjust for population, where it was a lot smaller than that's equal to somewhere between 225 and 450 million people today. My so goodness. God, wow. Yeah. I mean, thank God. As bad as COVID-19 is, even in the worst, worst case scenarios, we're not looking at even, uh, you know, a, a shadow of, of, of those kinds of numbers. Uh, Thank God for that. Where did the Spanish flu come from? I know it didn't come from Spain. No, that's one thing we do know is it didn't start in Spain. Uh -huh. uh, it got the name because Spain was not at war. And their media in World War Two and World War One, World War One, right? Yeah. Uh, and their media uh, wrote about it. Uh, whereas that means there was not a sort of war-related censorship in their country. Is that what you're correct? Referring? Correct. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, now there are probably four leading hypotheses as to where it began. Nobody knows. Nobody will ever know. One is France. France. Is the United States. One is China. One is Vietnam. In my book, I advanced a uh, hypothesis for the United States, actually rural Kansas. I even, even published a uh, scientific journal article on it, which got a fair amount of traction. Ironically, I have uh, backed off that hypothesis myself. I, I now think it's probably more likely in China. Why did you back off? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of epidemiological work uh, since the book originally came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the evidence changes. And if you got a brain and an open mind, you, you change your position. It of still course, should yeah. be in the United States. Um, I think the China actually, uh, at least the parts of China where I think 
the the statistics are, are very good, which is Hong Kong actually suffered less, significantly less than most other places in the world. Uh, Even the Spanish flu? Yes. That strongly suggests that people in Hong Kong had been exposed to that virus earlier. Uh, And, you know, it's not absolutely compelling evidence, but it's enough to make me uh, back up the U.S. as being the most likely source. Uh, And there are, you know, hypotheses advanced about France and and Vietnam, but it, it could be either of them. It could be some other place that we don't know about. And when it comes to uh, the Spanish flu pandemic, or really any pandemic, and the fact that at that time in 1918 to about 1920, Hong Kong was still uh, part of the British Empire, that that doesn't make any difference as far as healthcare or or preventative measures or anything, right? No, no. You 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 mentioned uh, the year 1918, and that's the year the Spanish flu sort of started how long did it last uh depends how you count uh-huh. uh at 1918 to 1920 i generally don't count 1920 uh some people think there were four waves which would go into 1920 uh, i tend to think there were three waves three waves okay 19 the spring of 1918 which was a very mild wave and also uh to quote uh, you know, leading scientists at the time, the first wave had a tendency to peter out. In other words, peter out. Okay, it was not that transmissible. Uh, there was a lethal second wave. A variant emerged that became much more transmissible, but also became much more lethal. When was that, sir? That first emerged probably in the late summer and spread worldwide in the fall. Uh, that probably two-thirds of the total deaths occurred in a period remarkably short, 14 or 15 weeks. In the fall. Wow, 14 to 15 weeks. Yeah, fall of 1918. Uh, then there was, and this is very unusual, there was a third wave in the same influenza season beginning in March of 1919. Uh, as I say, some people uh, count a fourth wave a year later. Uh, depends how you count. I don't argue with them. I don't see it that way. It's not a big deal. Question of semantics. Do you think the spread, the rapid spread of the Spanish flu uh, had some dependence or correlation with World War One and soldiers? I don't. I don't. A lot of okay. people speculate on that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the war had much impact uh, at all, I, other than maybe excel if, in fact, it did begin in the United States. The first well-known outbreak clearly was in the United States. Where? In, uh, in Kansas, as you were? Just in military camp. Uh, and certainly thousands of American soldiers, out of hundreds of thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of them, went from the United States in the spring to Europe. You know, they, they would have been infected. Uh, so that accelerated the spread in Europe, but with exponential spread, 
it really doesn't matter if you start out with a thousand cases or one case, because one case, when they start doubling rapidly, catches up pretty quickly to a thousand. So you you know would accelerate the spread, but not really make a significant difference over a period of weeks, even much less longer term. Um, so if in fact my high original hypothesis was correct that it started in rural kansas the war would have been a factor because it quite possibly would have died out in that rural area without ever uh making it to the outside world because of its us sparse population is right okay you know again my original hypothesis which i backed off of these people from a particular community in Kansas whom were identified by name in the local weekly papers being sick with influenza and in pneumonia, you know, they would have carried it to uh, the army camp, what is now uh, then called Camp Funston in Fort Riley. Uh, so if it had died out there, then it, nothing would ever have happened. But as I say, I'm no longer, I was never convinced that that was the starting point in the sense of, you know, willing to get in a fight with somebody over it. <laughs> it was only a hypothesis best. Yeah. Now that you're leaning more towards China as the potential origin of this um, uh, pandemic uh, a century ago, is there any certain region? And if you said Wuhan, <laughs> that would be just too wild. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know of any. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, did did it did the Spanish flu target the same age group as COVID nineteen oh, has been? Totally different. Totally different. Okay. The reverse. Uh, number one, probably young the people. Most, then most vulnerable were children under ten, particularly children under five. Oh no, that's devastating. It they were the most vulnerable. The second most vulnerable group were young adults. Uh, probably two thirds of the deaths were people aged 18 to 45 or 50. Uh, I think the peak age for death outside of, if you subtract the, uh, the very young, uh, you're talking about 28 years old, late twenties. Uh, so an entire, you know, pregnant women uh, looked at uh, several studies of pregnant women and the case fatality rate ranged from 21% to 71%. So you're talking wow. entirely different population from, from COVID-19. And in fact, well over 90% of the excess mortality actually occurred in people younger than 65 years old. So, you know, the most likely explanation for that is that people over 65 had been exposed to a similar virus uh, much earlier uh, in their lives uh, that was so mild it really escaped medical attention at the time, but close enough related that it gave them immune protection against this virus. Uh, do, do you have any prior pandemics in mind for this? Well, uh, you know, Jeff Taubenberger, again, the, the uh, scientist I've mentioned earlier and uh, one of his colleagues, Dave Barnes, they've done a lot of work looking at uh, outbreaks, uh, not only in people, but in horses, uh, you know, influenza can infect most mammals. The 1918 pandemic infected pretty much 
every known mammal, including seals. You know, nobody tested whales, but apparently they, well, they couldn't do a virologic test, but seals actually were, were showing symptoms. Oh, people, people gave it to pigs. It's pretty clear that humans gave it to pigs in 1918. Uh, so, you know, I've been wondering so much, I forgot your question. <laughs> no, no, you're actually going, you, you know, um, uh, as 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 you were detailing this uh, in my mind, I kept on going to another point that you made earlier. You used the word variant. Yep. Delta variant is in the news, and uh, we won't get into its politics here. But I've read your book, by the way. Politics, politics is, plays a big role in in what happens. Politics. Yeah, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, uh, in your book, you mention mutations of the spanish flu and uh, uh if i uh, recall correctly these mutations also had a temporal and geographic sort of gradient uh, that the further you are from an epicenter let's say it's occurring in san jose california if you're out in san luis obispo which is four hours you're less likely to get it's the the, the virus is weaker if you will and if it's several well, months go ahead I mean, that's an observation that I made that I've been meaning to explore in depth with, you know, uh, friends who are scientists for a long time. Uh, that the later you got sick in a particular city mm -hmm. and the later in the pandemic and the second wave you got sick, the better off you most likely were. Uh, like Australia, which was very widely infected, I think like 40% of the population, according to their own oh. data, uh, is from the second wave, they had by far the best outcome of a, uh, a Western culture. And, and with them, they had actually imposed a, a strict quarantine to protect themselves. And it wasn't until January uh, that- January 1919. January 1919. Now there's something else that's pretty interesting that, uh, so, so that suggests that, you know, the, the virus was diminishing and, and lethality. Uh, I could get into some other hypothetical reasons for why that wouldn't have been the case, but, I'd rather make another point given, which I think is kind of interesting. Please do. And that is if you got sick in the first wave, but remember the first wave was not that widespread. For example, Los Angeles didn't have a single death. So we're talking about spring of uh, spring 1918. Okay. You got sick in the first wave. Uh -huh. You got better protection against getting sick or dying in the second wave than the best modern vaccine we've ever developed you had 89 percent protection against uh illness 94 percent protection against death if you were sick in the first wave against the second wave so However, the luckiest scenario for catching this disease let was me the, finish for a second please, please. The, best, the best vaccine we've ever developed is 61 percent effective and preventing illness. And usually most influenza vaccines are under 50%. Uh, 
uh, effective in preventing illness, although they are much more, they're over 80% effective in preventing somebody going to an intensive care unit. So it's still important to take them. Uh, but the other part that's very interesting mm -hmm. is that if you were sick in the first or the second wave, very similar viruses or variant, you know, versions of the same virus, that did not protect you at all against the third wave. So what was <laughs> wow. happening here? Wow. The first wave was, as I say, wasn't that widespread. So uh -huh. there was no evolutionary pressure on the virus to escape immune protection. The second wave was very widespread. It was everywhere. And, uh, you know, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the people were symptomatically ill and a lot higher proportion of people were infected but didn't show symptoms. Uh, but that was so widespread, there was in, uh, evolutionary pressure on the virus to escape the immune system. And that led to the third wave. Interesting. Um, are the words mutation and variant similar? Are they the same when we talk about pandemics? Well, they're very close. I'm not sure they're exactly synonymous, but I mean, you know, uh, for something to be a variant, you know, number one, you know, influenza mutates a lot faster than, than COVID, a lot faster. But, uh, you know, oh, they're both RNA viruses. Uh, all RNA viruses mutate rapidly. They are what is referred to as mutant swarms. So they're like snowflakes. Every one of them is a little bit different somewhere. So the, the, that you would be a mutation. A variant would sort of take hold. But you talk about a mutation, you talk about a variant, and that's uh, you know very similar, not identical. During the time of the Spanish flu, did, did healthcare providers appreciate that mutations or variants are occurring in the pandemic? Well, they didn't even know what a virus was. They didn't know <laughs> that influenza was caused by a virus. Uh, they were familiar with changes in bacteria, but bacteria, which are much more advanced organisms, change at a much slower pace. So, you know, they, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, they observed it. They were, you know, very serious scientists, every bit as smart as the smartest people we yeah. are today. Uh, great observers. They didn't have the knowledge or the tools that we have today. So uh, I don't recall seeing, you know, much of any literature on it. Uh, but I'm sure that they, they were aware the shifting nature based on your research and writings about the spanish flu at the outset of covid 19 as as started to sort of spread were you fearing or anticipating that that a variant such as the delta variant would 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 happen in such a large scale yeah and you know i yeah, I wrote about that stuff. I mean, my first op-ed I wrote, you know, not, not specifically about variants, but about the pandemic. I, I wrote it in uh, in January, and uh, on the working title, this fire. January twenty twenty. Yeah, uh -huh. which ran in the Washington Post. I pulled my punches a little bit 
uh, when it ran, changed the title to can this virus be contained? Probably not. It's a little bit less strong than this virus cannot be contained. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, rather than, you know, kind of patting myself on the back, but in, in April 2020, I predicted that summer would not provide relief. I wasn't the only person saying that, but we were a minority. A lot of people were saying the heat of the summer would, you know, the virus is seasonal. Heat and humidity do slow transmission, but uh, I thought the fact that so many people were still susceptible to infection at that time, probably 95% of the population, uh, I thought that was more important. Unfortunately, I, you know, that prediction proved to be true. And, you know, we knew anybody who understood the virus, I'm not a virologist, certainly, uh, but, you know, a little bit about pandemics, you know, a little bit about viruses you know that they change. That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, it's the nature of, of an, uh, especially an RNA virus. They change. So, uh, yeah, you, you and people forget the very first variant. The U.S. was largely infected by the virus that came from Italy, not the virus that first, you know, made it to the United States in uh from from china that yeah. went to seattle correct you know so is the virus, virus that spread around the country i don't know specifically italy but came from europe uh you know because that had already changed but they weren't using the term variant yet but that was a variant it was more efficient and then we got other variants it became even more efficient at uh, transmission interesting i understand there will be future variants you know Hopefully, they will not Im improve on Delta's ability to transmit. I, there's a term Delta Plus out there. I don't know what that is. I it's also Lambda, uh, oh, wow. which is you know concerning, and there will be others. But Delta's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good uh, at transmission. So uh, just because it's a variant doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be worse. But there will be variants. Why don't we take a short break here and then come back and talk about America's response to the Spanish flu. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Mr. Barry, in, the, in, in a previous segment, you said that uh, politics has a lot to do with how we handle um, a pandemic. Uh, so let's get into it. We know how President Trump handled the COVID-19 pandemic and how President Biden is dealing with it now. How did President Wilson respond to the Spanish flu pandemic? He ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> are you it's, ignored it, ignored it, or are you sort of uh, I mean, he, a drama here? He ignored it. He never. Wow made a single 
public statement about the pandemic, not one ever. Uh, he, did, was he criticized? He, he was. He was, you know, sort of an obsessive compulsive type of person. And he was obsessed and entirely focused on the war. Period. He believed in to the exclusion of other stuff, exclusion of everything else. He believed in his administration behaved, in, uh, you know, in conformity to his belief that any distraction, anything that might possibly hurt morale would hurt the war effort. And therefore, his administration lied when it came to influenza. They said things like, this is ordinary influenza by another name. You have nothing to worry about if proper precautions are taken. Now, the difference between 1918 and today is that in 1918, on a per capita basis, Many, 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 many more people were dying. They were, as we talked about earlier, much younger. They were dying in some cases in as little as 12 hours after the first symptoms. Whoa. Sometimes with horrific symptoms, uh, you know, uh, Ebola-like symptoms, you could bleed not only from your nose and mouth, and nosebleed was quite common, uh, but you could actually bleed from your eyes and ears. So, and Th people that, that turning, one sounds demonic, like a movie. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, so when people are dying around you and they're dying with horrific symptoms in some cases, the, most of the deaths were probably secondary bacterial infections causing pneumonia. Mm -hmm. they, by no means was everybody dying with this, with the symptoms that I'm describing. Uh, it's and it's hard to say how many died from secondary infection. Even today, uh, bacterial infection following influenza has a very high case mortality, about eight percent. Back then, it was more like twenty-five to thirty percent because you didn't have antibiotics. But even today, influenza basically wipes out a lot of your defenses. Uh, so the bacteria have a field day when they get they get to the lung. Uh, but because of that. The, the death toll, who's dying, nobody paid any attention to the reassurances from the government. And most, in most cases, most cities, the local health authorities were repeating the same kind of nonsense. Uh, this is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, and I remember in, in Little Rock, there was an army base outside Little Rock. A doctor there, I quoted in the book, saying, you know, he's reciting how every corridor and every hospital on the base, you know, is full. There is nothing but death and destruction. Eight miles away in Little Rock, the newspaper is, runs a headline saying Spanish flu, same old fever and chills. Well, it's just as bad. <laughs> Was this pressure from politicians or didn't news reporters didn't know? Oh, they know. How could you not know? You see it on front of you. Yeah, the, the point is that oh, the wow. news media in 1918 was extremely patriotic and, and went along with, uh, with 
you know, the government's view, the federal government's view that uh, damaging morale was going to hurt the war effort. Everything was focused on the war. But again, nobody believed it because of the experience they could see around them. Uh, so when places instituted restrictions. What do you mean by restrictions? Get, what kind of restrictions? You know, uh, well, there were fewer than, you know, in 2020, frankly, because they wanted the economy to keep going because of the war. They wanted every factory to keep going 100% because of the war. Uh, so they wanted no interruptions in production, et cetera. So what they did close was places like saloons, theaters, uh, you know, uh, band, you know, schools, uh, churches. Closing saloons probably didn't go well, right? No, particularly because many of the big cities, the saloon owners were huge political supporters of the political machine. But uh, it didn't really matter because these places were empty out of fear. You know, there's a picture in the book of uh, New York City, Manhattan. And it's kind of a dull picture. It just shows a couple of city workers in the front of the picture of the foreground with masks on. Uh, what's the big deal? But then you think, wait a second. This is Manhattan. There's not a car moving on the street. There's not a pedestrian on the sidewalk. This is Manhattan. So, so in a way, the mandates. Here. So and to get back to the restrictions, you didn't need the restrictions. Fear was keeping people whole. There was also very little push, unless you actually owned a saloon. You know, there's essentially no pushback against the restrictions. There was much greater level of fear than has been the case at any time in this pandemic, with the possible exception of initially in New York City. There's been, if there's been a mistake in the coverage uh, during COVID of what happened in 1918, I think it was uh, an overemphasis on uh, some objections to masking, particularly in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, what happened in San Francisco, you know, they imposed a mask ordinance, among other restrictions. They then lifted the mask ordinance. The pandemic, the influenza returned to the city and they reimposed it. That's when you got uh, some people resisting. You know, basically, they just felt they'd been released from prison. They were now free. The pandemic was gone. Then suddenly you say, oh, no, no, wait a second. Put it back on. Put it back on. And that, you know, that that did generate restrictions. But even that, you know, I, I think that's been overblown by by the uh, media in this, in this case. And, you know, San Francisco is one of the few places where that happened anyway. And masks were widely accepted. Uh, nobody liked them. Uh, in many cities, if you weren't wearing a mask, you would you would find yourself under tremendous pressure. There was a phrase of a mask slacker. You know, if you didn't buy a liberty bond, you were a slacker. You didn't support the war effort. You were a slacker. If you didn't wear a mask, you were a slacker. And you got vigilante groups enforcing mask ordinances in some cities uh so you know mr barry this this narrative that you're sharing with me 
is really not covered in the news media at all. You kind of feel like uh, resistance to restrictions and mask mandates now are a mirror image of what happened in the Spanish flu. But you're saying that really is not the yeah, case. I, I don't think it's the case, right? I don't think it's, uh, yeah, it's quite different now. And and I, look, if if today, at this point in time, we had a couple of million dead Americans and they were aged on average 28 years old, and the pregnant women were dying at a rate of 21% to 71% case mortality. Yeah. yeah. If you objected to putting a mask on, you'd be lucky to escape you with your life, I think, today. Since the young age cohorts were uh, hit by the pandemic at higher rates and higher proportions, did the economy suffer? I know you said they were keeping factories open. Uh, well, two points. There was a tremendous amount of absenteeism. Uh, places where we have data, which would be the war industries like shipbuilding. And remember, you didn't get sick leave back then. Uh, if you didn't show up, you weren't paid. If you were in shipbuilding, you were told that you were as important to the war as if you were a soldier on the front line very much your patriotic duty. Even so, you're seeing 40 to 60% absenteeism from those. Wow. So we don't have data from other areas, or at least not that I saw. You would uh, guess that the absenteeism would be even higher. Uh, in mines, and every the only power source we had back then was either coal or water power. So coal, the country ran on coal, factories ran on coal. But uh, according to Metropolitan Life, over 6% of all the miners in the key demographic, like 18 to 50, died. Not case mortality, mortality. And mm -hmm. you're remember, you're talking about in a period of a few weeks. Yeah. The mines... A lot of the mines basically shut down. Same thing for railroads. People out sick or afraid to go to work or taking care of somebody home. So the economy did, uh, you know, somewhat stall out. But again, it was brief. You know, and when I said earlier about 14 or 15 weeks, that was worldwide. In any particular city, it was usually no more than 10 weeks and usually considerably less than that it would take. And that's the same as today. You know, influenza is influenza. That was more lethal, but it's the same kind of virus. Yeah. Fast moving. When influenza hits a city today, it usually burns through that place in six or eight weeks. It was the same in 1918. Uh, so the brevity, you know, it was an incredibly intense experience obviously tragic but the stress from covid in a lot of ways because of the duration is greater and the I stress see. on the economy today is much much greater than than it was in 1918. let's take a break here stay with me and mr barry as we get into the perspective Mr. Barry, knowing as much as you know about pandemics, your research and writing about the um, 
Spanish flu. What message do you have to American politicians? Let's start with that about the current pandemic. I think there are two lessons from 1918, and I、mm-hmm. think then, and I, I wrote this in afterwards.、Uh, you know, long before COVID, I think COVID has confirmed them. Confirmed them, and the two lessons are deeply intertwined.、Uh, the first is to tell the truth. And the second is that so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions work. Work.、Uh, yeah. So the, you know the restrictions and so forth they save lives. But the two things are intertwined. If if leadership doesn't tell the truth, I mean the only way the these you know show you know the restrictions will work is if people comply with them over a sustained period of time, not just for a week, but for a long time. By restrictions, you mean social distancing and mask wearing and other such things. Exactly, and people aren't going to do that unless they trust you and believe in what you're telling them. And if you don't tell them the truth, sooner or later they're going to find that out. And once your credibility is shot, it's gone forever.、Uh, the problem we've had in the United States, obviously,、uh, you know, these issues became politicized. Uh, if if、uh, Trump and the public health community had been saying the same thing, we wouldn't have any of the problems, and we'd have several hundred thousand Americans who are dead would be alive. It's that simple.、Uh, when you look around the world, I, I think it's it's proof of that.、Uh, I see. I see.、Um, so, Mr. Barry, do you think the Biden administration had has made market Improvements over the previous administration. Oh yeah, obviously. You know they've tried to. I mean, for one thing, the most incredible thing Trump said to me in his entire presidency is not all these crazy provocative stuff, but in the middle of an international and national crisis, he repeatedly said the federal government is a backup. A backup.、The、you don't like that. It's crazy. That's you know he's saying he's not going to leave. That's what presidents are supposed to do: not back people up. They're supposed to lead. So you know on on this issue,、uh, yeah, Biden has taken a leadership position. Has you know there continued to be quote messaging unquote problems coming out of CDC? Yes. Uh, I wish that had been cleaned up, but in terms of taking this seriously, trying to get vaccines to everyone, doing ev- pretty much everything they can to try to save lives and do things the right way, yeah, I think they have done.、Uh, you know, so you know, the people who are so resistant, not all of them are doing it out of political partisan reasons, because somehow or other they. You know, they feel loyalty to Trump, and therefore they're anti. You know, by no means are all the people who reject vaccines in that camp, but you know, a very significant chunk of those people are, and it's unfortunate. It's and it's going to cost them some people their lives. Do you think the reason now the fight against the pandemic? 
suffers because of the political divide. And it, it obviously, sure. obviously, yeah. Do you think much of that has to do with uh, President Trump's sort of stance, early stance, especially against dealing yeah. with COVID? And that has sort of perpetuated. Yeah, I mean, you have to be a macho man. And that, uh, again, it's, it's nuts. You know, all the pandemic gaming scenarios that everybody went through for 15 years after the Bush administration really started taking this seriously. All the scenarios, you know, I've never heard of one of them where somebody proposed that the federal government would back out of the game entirely. In fact, President Bush's pandemic preparation sort of packet put the federal government in the forefront. I've 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 read oh, leadership. Uh, yes. he, yeah. yeah. So in an in, in an earlier segment when I asked you, was that pandemic preparation plan put into practice uh, by Mr. Trump's administration, you said no. Why is that? First, define the no, if you would, please. Is it a case that they were aware of it and they just chucked it, they jettisoned it, or is it that they found it insufficient, irrelevant? What happened? You'd have to ask them. You know, know, as has been well documented, there were some exercises that occurred. one of them run by Robert Cadlick, who's assistant secretary HHS in charge of uh, pandemic response. That was interagency. A lot of the shortages and so forth uh, surfaced in that game as they had in other games. Uh, you know, the plans were out there. There was literally something called the pandemic playbook, which Ron Klain wrote in the Obama administration. He was in charge of the Ebola response. Of course, now he's chief of staff for Biden. That was what it was called, the pandemic playbook. You know, in terms... doesn't get more clear than that. What you do to coordinate stuff, you know, I mean, and no attention was paid to it. You know, there were a few individuals in the administration uh, who tried to do things the right way, but, you know, the, the it, it's... It's at the top. Do you think, and I appreciate this is a speculation, but do you think if Mr. Trump was president during uh, uh, Mr. Bush's administration, where he had dealt with 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, Katrina, and SARS, maybe his response would have been different? Maybe reading his book, would, would reading your book have spooked him the way it spooked? President Bush. Trump has never read a book. <laughs> well, I told you it's a hypothetical. It's a speculation. Yeah. You know, it reminds me uh, there was a senator named Vance Hartke from Indiana. And he uh, wrote in a book, and his ghost writer campaigned against him when he ran for re election. And he said that he could promise not only didn't the senator write the book, but that he never read it. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Trump has written several books, right? Yeah, right. 
<laughs> yeah, all right. Mr. Barry, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel Out News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.